0: I was born in Belfast, where every cloud had a silver lining of savings, and every Bible had a gilt edge of government securities. God and the ground, the gloom and the gleam, the old Puritan clash and contrast. A careful, frugal city, Belfast, it seemed to me, where many a muck hill made a mickle, and the rewards of righteousness were real estate. The wolf was so well fed in those days that he didn't even bother to come to our door. Still, we were a fairly contented family, and the day I came into the world was certainly a different day. All the pubs held their breath, and the bells of the city danced with their hands in their pockets, and the Rebelly River ran wild, and a decorated tram car took off over the hills and far away. Big drums found their tongue. Commas lost their tails, and mad ladders went round the streets looking for somebody to climb them. My father, who had a fine sense of occasion, remarked, we may put a nick in the post today. Then he took down the good bottle of first-shot whiskey, which otherwise he never touched except at funerals, and the good book, and he read from the sober roll of the generations of great men. Judah, which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham, which was the son of Tara, which was the son of Naka, which was the son of Garak. Son and Sonny and, 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 and Sully and Donny and Money and Rosie and Mosey and Natty and Marty and Nancy and, Nancy and Francie and Jenny and Joe.
1: W.R. Rogers was born in 1909 into a Belfast on the end of the Industrial Revolution and at the beginning of the Irish Revolution. Born into a comfortable, conformist and contented middle-class Presbyterian background, his childhood mind soon came to look out of the conventional northern windows of parental influence, religion and the big black book. But at a very early age, there were indications of what was to come. Here, he recalls, his first and earliest fascination for
0: words. My father, who belonged to an older, Erasta world, for whom the word was like gold dust, was always careful about words, uh, as if you might choke on them if you overused them. After all, we Protestants were the people of the word, our only sacrament, the infallible word. And whether it was the Bible or the newspaper, my father read it all out loud and lovingly, and there I think I got my first liking for language.
2: Always the arriving winds of words pour like Atlantic gales over these ears, these reefs, these foils and fenders, these shrinking and sea scalded edges of the brainland. Rebutted and rebounding, on they post past my remembrance, falling all unplanned. But some day out of darkness they'll come forth, arrowed and narrowed into my tongue's tip, and speak for me, their most astonished host.
0: Our house stood on a sandy ridge high above the river valley. And from an upper window I could look down on the cockpit city with its red combs of smoke. City of ships and shawleys, dolls and doilies, distilleries and swilleries,
2: mills and
3: rattling roving Irishman. I can do all that ever you can, for I am the wee man. I have a sister Mirianne, she washes her face in the frying pan. And out she goes mm-hmm. to hunt for a man, I have a sister, Miriam.
0: I am a good old working man. Good a city a that from gutters to gantry in one go. Proud Victorian city that never lifted its factory hat of fumes except to guard on Sundays. Still, in spite of it all, we Belfast children had a good time. In spite of the Puritan pressures, we had our flashes of apathy, our forebodings of pleasure, our twinges of happiness. We learned to bear our joys with fortitude and to make daisy chains of our millstones and to slip between the cracks of life. We could, at times, be as relaxed as a non-taxable income. Springtime, for instance... Round the corner would come a troop of ragamuffins with the May Queen dancing in front. She wore a bridal dress of old lace curtains and a wreath of paper flowers, and her bridesmaids held her hands and danced beside her, while her December bridegroom with blackened face followed with a begging retinue of retainers who sang... Our queen can burl her leg, burl her leg, burl her leg ah queen can burl her leg, burl her leg The doggie says he'll marry her, marry her, marry her The doggie says he'll marry her because she is a queen
3: Green gravel, green gravel, your grass is so green you're the fairest young damsel I ever have seen. I washed her, I dressed her, I clothed her in silk, and I wrote down her name with a glass pen and ink. Green gravel, green gravel, your true love is dead. I sent you a letter to turn back your head.
0: Oh, it was spring. Everything was suddenly light and gay and capering. The tram conductors put on white caps. Flights of painters appeared on tops of ladders, like angels. And all the dogs took to crossing the road at once, like a zigzag of bootlaces. Off came our winter boots, and on went our gutties and our shorts, and we ran weightless through the long-legged shadows of the streets, or... Jagged as winds in June we dance behind the watering carts that sparkled and sprinkled the dusty roads.
2: Late, late, but lift now the diffident fiddle, and fill the dancing bed with light, and the bud room with thunder, till all the floors fall in, and walls laugh under the envious knockings of neighbours, and over the sill the daffodil day looks in. You who are standing, yes, you, kick up your kilt of legs like a gawky foal and fling away there. On every leaf landing, the lovers are forking. On every stair air, they are larking. The dog days are barking in all the backyards. So off with your careful sark and lift the diffident fiddle. Oh, the lilts not difficult if you have soil in your soul. God in the claw then, begin and cloud into powder your foot and fetlock of clay as you clout the floor and claw your next of skin in a fog of guffaws. In
1: 1926, Rogers went up to Queen's University, Belfast, to study for the ministry. At Queen's, one of his closest friends was Bill Hutchison, the Tyrone Historian.
4: And I went up to Queen's in 1926, and uh, Bertie was in my year, and we did the same subject, English Lit, and we were together until 1930, both graduated in the same year. I wouldn't have said he was a great scholar in the academic sense. Uh, he actually had a couple of goes at it before he passes Anglo-Saxon, which of course might be regarded as a compliment, but uh, one thing we did notice that he always was able to manage to get the gold medal for the essay every year. His interests were, I would think, narrow. I would say that, I think. Uh, he didn't watch sports, very little interest in it, unlike Lloyd McNeese, who was always a keen rugby fan. He didn't take part in the dramatic society, though his wife, uh, Murray, whom I knew very well, uh, she was a leading light on that. Um, but he did, of course, always sit with the, the poets, as one might call them, at the table in the union. Well, was, there,
1: was there actually uh, a poets' group in the university at that
4: time? Well, uh, they didn't call themselves a poets' group, but uh, one always saw them together, more or less. And uh, uh, They contributed to the, the university mm-hmm. magazine, and they had an identity along those lines. Bertie didn't, as far as I remember, contribute. I don't remember seeing anything he wrote on those days. I think he was probably what you would call a lit developer. John Hewitt did, of course.
1: John Hewitt, who was a poetic contemporary of Rogers. He was, yes. uh, Was at Queens at that same time.
4: He was there at the same time, that's right, yes. A very vigorous and active chap he was. They were very different characters, you know, John Hewitt and uh, Bertie. John was more of an extrovert, I think, and Bertie very much the introvert. Uh, he read fairly widely, he, uh, uh, but one wouldn't have thought he, he was a sort of uh, encyclopaedia from uh, a literary point of view. That came later. Uh, he was very sensitive, though. He used to tell me that when he was going out for a walk, he had the title of the essay in his, uh, his head, and if he thought of a good phrase, he would take out a card and write it down and work it in afterwards. He used to come back with his pocket stuffed with these cards. And it paid off. He got the medal in the, for the essay every year.
1: After graduating from Queens, Rogers was a junior minister in a church in Belfast for a few years before in 1934 he went down to Cloverneedon Presbyterian Church in Loch Gaulle, where he was eventually ordained. Loch Gaul is a famous area in history and tradition. On the left... As I stood under Cloverneedon Presbyterian Church was the diamond famous in orange mythology and behind me lay the bogs of the yellow ford and the Blackwater, where the Battle of Ben Burb was fought. One of the people who remembered him best in Loch Gaul was Billy Willis who was sexton at the church in his time.
5: Mr Rogers you see was the clergyman here in Cloverneedon for 12 years and I knew him very well for I had wrought a long time with him back and forth and, and doing walking in the church and working at his own home in the mosque you were the sexton I was the sexton you see I was the sexton and I had a lot of correspondence with him back and forth you see and then 12 years that he had been here and we had a lot of ups and downs with, with uh, uh, back and forth you see with one thing or another but uh, Mr Rogers was a very easy good on man good on with he never lost his temper and he was very cool and very nice to work with. Well, as me and Mister Rogers was walking through the orchard, you see, would come to a, clump of a pear tree where there was two pears on this tree, on this tree, and he never had saw fruit on this tree before. He'd been there a few years, and he hadn't saw any fruit on this tree. But he was near about these two pears, and the children were coming here from the Sunday school for a, a party there and he knew that the children would see the, the pears and they would pull them and he was a man that wouldn't tell them or he wouldn't check them for pulling the fruit so he told me for to get some gum and we got leaves off the pear tree and he put the gum on the pear, around the pears and we stuck leaves on them so that the children couldn't notice the, the pears and he had no call to check them or tell them anything about it. the pears grew on and the children went away
2: There is a through-otherness about Armagh of tower and steeple. Up on the hill are the arguing graves of the kings and below are the people. Through-other as the rooks that swoop and swap over the sober hill go the people gallivanting from shop to shop and guffawing their fill. And the little houses run through the market town Slap up against the grate, like the farmers, all clubber and muck, walking arm by arm with the men of state, raised at a time when reason was all the rage of gray and equal stone, this bland face of Armagh covers an age of clay and feather and bone, through other is its history of Celt and Dane, Norman and Saxon, who ruled the place and sounded the gamut of fame from cowhorn to claxon. There is a through-otherness about Armagh, delightful to me. Up on the hill are the graves of the garrulous kings who at last can agree.
5: I remember Mr Rogers telling me, you see, about mowing on the farm, they had a farm there, a few acres, kept a cow, and a goat, and some calves, but Mr Rogers, his father, was mowing rushes down in this grazing, and he had hidden, he had hid the side and a sharpened stone that he had for using, you see, for sharpening his side. so, through the night time, he had taken ill, and I was talking to him, and he told me he was very ill, and she see Willie, says he, I was frightened," he says. "I thought I was going to die. And what annoyed me, he says, is he uh, was that uh, if anything had happened, nobody would have knew where the scythe and the sharpened zone was. And his son, he said, when he told the son, the son laughed at it and was well
6: pleased about it. That he had, that he, there was nothing happened to him. He was all right again.
2: There is nothing to note. Only the moors moving like doom. Slowly, one by one, a gloom of bees rises and soon snores thunder-headed away into the sun. Listen, listen, do you hear the hiss of the scythes in the long grasses that are silently tingling like bells that kiss and repel as the wind passes? There, in the last care and core of corn, the hare is couched. Not till the moors flash their smiling scythes and all its walls are shorn will the wild creature dash into the wintry air of hound and horn. Listen, listen, do you hear the hiss of the scythes in the long grasses of your laughter? More is mowed than you know, for this is time's swathe, and you are the one that is after.
4: The hare, I, you know, I think really was himself. He was the hare being chased. He was uh, not unlike Hopkins. though I think perhaps not quite so, uh, such an extrovert as Hopkins was. But there was a hopkins thing about him, all the same. He was conscious of being hunted in, in, in the kind of hare sense, as the hare appears in his, uh, his poetry. What, what, what do you think was hunting him? Uh, difficult to put your finger on that, but uh, I think he was aware of the fact that the world was full not only of fools, but of, of, of brutes.
6: On the first of October, on the morning and the when the sound of a horn, our dogs all appeared. We went all down the road like a jolly sportsman With our hounds and good battle, you will now understand We made no delay, but once trained on our rounds With the rest of our hunts, men was soon gathered round There's Gibney and John McLone, now two boys of great skill Send me now, try our dogs, boys, around Alice cell.
2: Over rock and wrinkled ground ran the lingering nose of hound. The little and elastic hair stretched herself, nor stayed to stare. Stretched herself and far away darted through the chinks of day. Behind her, shouting out her name, the whole blind world galloping came. Over hills, a running line curled like a whiplash, fast and fine. Past me sailed the sudden pack along the taut and tingling track. From the far flat scene each shout like jigsaw piece came tumbling out. I took and put them all together and then they turned into a tether, a tether that held me to the hair, here, there
6: and everywhere. Mr. Rogers had visited me and I had bought some, got some ordered to from for him, you see, from a, a man the name of Greenham Milk at Blackwater Town. But Mr. Rogers then was annoyed about a, a, a rooster, a wee rooster, a bunty rooster and a bunty hen, and the bunty rooster had died. And it left the very hen very lonely. So he told me about it. And uh, I said that I had a, I had a game rooster, that I, a young game rooster, I'll bring it around and leave it with him. So I left it there for a good wee while you see and then Mr. Mrs Rogers came round and she told me that she wanted me to take the, the, the rooster away and I said I thought I'd give it to Mr Rogers to keep. Oh she says I understand that, she says, well she says but we don't go into the yard where it is for it has faces and put it put back into the house. So well then, says I, that's alright, says I I go and take it home again. So then I went and bought him another one a bundy rooster out of my at a body farm, you see, and I give a shilling for it. Cost me a shilling for the body richer, So then they took up all right, and they read some young fowl, and they got along all right.
2: Mary Magdalene, that easy woman, saw from the shore, the seas beat against the hard stone of Lent, crying, "Weep, seas, weep for yourselves that cannot dent me more, oh, more than all these." more crabbed than all stones and cold, make me, who once could leap like water, Lord, take me as one who owes nothing to what she was, ah, naked, my waves of scent, my petticoats of foam, put from me and rebut, disown, and that salt lust stave off that slavered me, Oh, let it whiten in grief against the stones and outer reefs of me. Utterly doff, nor leave the lightest veil of feeling to heave or soften. Nothing cares this heart what hardness crates it now, or coffins. Over the balconies of these curved breasts I'll no more peep to see the light procession of my loves, surf riding into me, who now have eyes and alcove, Lord for thee. Room, Mary, said he, I'll make room for me, who am come so cold now to my tomb. So on Good Friday, under a frosty moon, they carried him, and laid him in her womb. A grave and icy mask her heart wore twice, but on the third day it thawed, and only a stones flow away, Mary saw her God. Did you hear me? Mary saw her God. Dance, Mary Magdalene, Dance, dance and sing, for unto you is born this day a king. Lady, said he, to you who relent, I bring back the petticoat and the bottle of scent.
1: During the twelve years that Rogers was clergyman in Loch Gall, among his closest friends were the McCann family, the late George McCann, the painter, and his wife Mercy McCann. Mercy McCann remembers those years and those happy years in Loch Gaul.
7: Well, I first met Bertie Rogers when uh, my husband and I, newly married, went to live in a place called Vinnycash uh, in County Armagh. This is a short distance outside Portadown and about seven miles from Loch Gaul. And Bertie was the Presbyterian clergyman at Loch
1: Gaul. That was just before the war, the Second World War? Yes,
7: just before the war. And we became very friendly uh, with Bertie and his wife, Mary, and their two children who were very young at that time, Hardin and Nini, they were just little things. And then uh, my husband was in the army and he went off to the war, and uh, it was I who first introduced Bertie to Louis McNeice.
1: What sort of a meeting
7: was that? Well, he had wanted to meet Bertie, and it was a very strange meeting. Uh, Louis had just married uh, Hedley McNeice and was staying with me, and we, uh, I invited Bertie over to meet them. And I remember Alan McClellan, the actor, was uh, staying with me at the time, and uh, Bertie he didn't telephone because we hadn't a telephone but he got a message through to me that he would like to bring a friend and I knowing Louis who didn't always take kindly to everyone said well be careful well anyhow he brought this friend and it was somebody that Louis had known at Oxford and there was a very hateful silence for a long time but Bertie rushed into the breach and it ended up as a very successful evening and uh, Louis was very impressed with Percy and with his work, and he arranged for him to go over to London, and he left Loch Gauld, he went over to London as a features writer for the BBC.
1: So, in fact, it was Louis MacNeice that uh, was the instigation of the break between the preacher and
7: the poet? Oh, yes. Quite so.
1: Well, then, did you know Bertie Rogers well in the years he was in London?
7: Always because uh, we we contacted him in London on many occasions, but when he ever came over to Ireland, he always came straight to my house. He always stayed here every time he came over.
1: People have said that he left Loch Gaul, but always took it with him, that he was a lonely man when he left, and he was even lonelier at the end.
7: Oh he, he you loved agree with that well, he loved Loch he loved he loved Ireland, he loved the Irish countryside, and he was. Absolutely at one with his parishioners there in Loch Gaul and even after he had left he always went back and he saw them because he and his wife, Mary Rogers she was a doctor and uh, this was the extraordinary thing if you know Irish countrymen who are not mm, well they don't think all that much of women but as a doctor she was completely successful there, it should have been a a marvellous partnership because uh, she practised as a doctor and he, of course, practised as a
1: clergyman. Was he happy when he left the ministry? Was he happy? Enough? What do you mean?
7: Was he happy to leave the ministry or was he a happier person? Did he feel he was fulfilling himself more when he went to London? Yes, I think he was. was a, it was a much broader thing, and of course, you know, a clergyman's stipends is practically nothing; it's a tiny.
1: After Rogers left Loch Gall, uh, tragedy came into his life and he divorced from his wife. How did that affect him?
7: Well, I, uh, I don't know how that affected him, but he, he remarried very happily. But uh, when poor Mary died, that was his wife. That was his first wife died in His Catholic first wife, circumstances. When she died, uh, he came over here for the funeral. And uh, I had them, I had Bertie and his friends in my house, you know, for a, a wake, as we call it in Ireland. And I'll always remember him in the funeral parlour, uh, a very tenderly affectionate way he went and stroked Mary's face. He he'd never lost this feeling of affection, and I think responsibility for her.
2: It is always the women who are the watchers and keepers of life. They guard our exits and our entrances. They are both tomb and womb, end and beginning. Bitterly they bring forth and bitterly take back the light they gave. The last to leave and still the first to come. They circle us like sleep or like the grave. Earth is their element, and in it lies the seed and silence of the lighted skies, the seasons with their fall and slow uprise, man with his sight and militant surmise. It is always the women who are the watchers and waitners.
1: Finally, in 1946, Rogers left the Ministry and Lockall, an island, to go and work in London in the BBC Features. Many of the programmes he did at that time returned to that hinterland of memory in Loch Gaulle and that childhood in the Irish countryside. One piece in particular was significant. In Rogers' long poem, Ireland, which he now reads and talks about, he remembers that area, that countryside, the memories and the smells and the sounds which were natural poetry, and which, in his fertile poetic imagination, became poetry.
0: Well, to me, I suppose the most memorable part of Ulster uh, is the Morn Country. I remember my first astonishing sight of it. I had been used to more unassuming landscapes, the roly-poly hills of County Down, or climbing on the flat of the Antrim Plateau, uh, but uh, this great lump, this overweening mass, stuck up just behind Newcastle, was something so astonishing that I took to the mountain like a duck to water. And I learned through the years climbing there, I, I learned all about stone, about feldspar, potpourri, greenstone, basalt, mica... And above all, uh, the the sticky glitter of granite. That, that is what stays in my mind and in my eye most of all. And I, I learned about water, water, the stone's child, because I used to walk up the rivers, climb the mountain that way. And I was fascinated at what, in the way in which uh, water could behave, about the way it's always wanting away, the way it always wants to run. The way it'll boggle at a drop just on the lip uh, of a precipice. Uh, The way it'll just slip over the lip. The way it'll hang in tatters on the falls. And uh, something of that I put into this poem. Of the morns I remember most, the mist, the grey granite goose-fleshed, the minute and blazing parachutes of fuchsia, and us listening to the tiny clustered clinks of little chisels tinkling tirelessly on stone, like a drip of birds' beaks picking rapidly at scattered grain. I think of those wet, sodden days when we for miles and miles steadily padded the slow sponge of turf that squealed and squelched cold between our bared toes. Or on an airy ridge, urgent and agile ran, a chain of jigging figures on the skyline. Or skilfully and file followed, tricking the hoops of hairy bramble in our path, poking in undergrowth and picking the bitter berries that prickle the springs of the dark mouth. There was Bloody River, where the granite pickles bristled and blazed, and and water bellied over boulders with the sweep of a bell's shoulders, and pancaked out in pools. Drinahilla, where the gale smoothed and glued back the eyelids. The granite river that is called Kilkeel, whose beds were clean and gritty, like oatmeal, and Commodore, in whose high summer heat nothing stirred, only the shimmering bleat of sheep, and we, as we sat and chattered, marked the motionless shine of falls far off on Binion, and nothing at all mattered, and leg of so soft and grassy, where the white scuts lazily scattered, and never in their remotest burrows did ferret fear come closely after them. Slievena Brock and its long pigtail trickles that hung down the bald rocks reaching to the glossy backs of the bracken. And Donard, where high over all, hanging, the strong hawk held in his eyes whole kingdoms, sources, seas. And in his foot hooks felt all things wriggling like the single string of river niggling among the enormous mountain bottoms. Burner and Lamegan and Chimney Rock, Spelger, Polgarve and Cole. All these names lie silently in my grass grown memory, each one bright and steady as a frog's eye. But touch it, and it leaps leaps like a bead of mercury that breaks and scatters suddenly in a thousand shining strings and running spools and ever dwindling rings round the mind's ball till at last all drop lumped and leaden again to one full stop
1: spent the last two years of his life 67 to 69 in America what did you learn or know about his relationship with America and his time in America
7: oh he this was wonderful he was never happier he'd had a lot of disappointments and a lot of frustrations in England one way and another but when he went over to America he was absolutely happy he had plenty of money for one thing And he and Marianne, that's his wife, and his little daughter Lucy, who was actually baptized in this house, uh, they had a lovely house up in the hills, and uh, there were deer and coyotes and all sorts of things, and his students loved him, he was tremendously appreciated.
1: He was teaching in
7: the... He was lecturing in the university. And uh, then later on, he was uh, lecturing, actually uh, doing religious lectures. And uh, it was it was lovely to think that he was so happy at that time. And he, he came back here for a visit, and he said to me, I've never been so happy in my life. And I, I think that's a very good ending. Incidentally, uh, he had a great appreciation and admiration for the ...people that were known as the the flower people or the hippies. Uh, He was absolutely at one with them. He was friendly with them. He loved them. They loved him. And uh, I remember him saying that he thought they were perhaps... ...one of the few truly religious communities in the world.
1: In one of the last poems Rogers wrote, just before his death in 69... He thought again of Lockall and of Ulster, of all that was happening in Northern Ireland, and he went back to that area of the diamond to write Home Thoughts from Abroad. Hearing, this June day, the thin thunder of far-off invective and old denunciation lambasting and lamb-begging the homeland, I think of that brave man, Paisley, eyeless in Gaza, with a daisy chain of millstones round his neck, groping like blind Samson for the soapy pillars and the grease poles of lightning, to pull them down in rains and barm a roars of rhetoric. There, but for the grace of God, goes God. I like his people and I like his guts. But I dislike his gods who'll always end in gunplay. Some day, of course, he'll be one with the old giants of Ireland. Such as Dennis of the Drought or Iron Buttocks. Who had at last to be reduced to size quietly shrunken into wee people and put out to grass on the hills for good, minimised like cars or skirts or mums, photostatted to fit a literate age and filed safely away on the dark shelves of memory, preserved in ink, oak gall, alcohol, aspic, piety, wit. A pity, perhaps, if it is the drama one wants. But look at it this way. In this day and age we can't really have giants lumbering all over the place, <coughs> cluttering it up with hair like ropes, flutes like telegraph poles, and feet like tram cars, intent only on dogging the fled horse of history and the boyne. So today across the Irish sea, I wave and wish him well from the bottom of my heart, where truth lies bleeding. Its eardrums burst by the blatter of his hand-me-down talk. In fond memory of his last stand, I dedicate this contraceptive pill of poetry to his unborn followers, and I place this bucket of beget-me-nots on his grave. Where does Roger stand among the Irish poets? Unlike MacNeice, he was not what we would call a poet of the 30s, influenced by the Spanish Civil War. Unlike Patrick Kavanagh and Austin Clarke, he did not remain in Ireland. I asked Seamus Heaney.
8: Yeah, I think Rogers is interesting because he’s uh, clearly a man who had to be a poet. He, and there is a sense in that first book of poems, Awake, of, uh, of a man, as I said, bursting into poetry. I would guess, I don’t know how, how true it is that. Uh, Gerald Hopkins uh, had some kind of releasing influence on him, and uh, clearly um, his own life as, as a minister um, brought him into I think uh, uh, an area of, of, of religious uh, struggle, and had various other kind of struggles to deal with. I think George Herbert and Hopkins would come to mind. A very obviously very verbal, and um, words themselves uh, lead him, uh, lead his imagination forward. Do
1: you think as a technician he was most influenced by those two poets?
8: I don't know if he was influenced as a technician by Herbert, but I, I think Hopkins clearly has some kind of deep influence on him. Uh, I mean the stories you, you hear with Bertie too are. Uh, the quips are are all based on this uh, passion for the language. Michael McLaughlin told me about picking up uh, a remark from one of his parishioners in one state that there was dandruff and the rosy dandruffs. <laughs> and uh, I remember hearing another beautiful uh, yarn, probably somebody else has told to do on this thing, uh, when one of his parishioners asked him afterwards why had he left the ministry. Said Alan, he says, you know, too many books spoil the cloth. Uh, oh, um, so I, mean, I think that's probably the first thing that uh, strikes me about him: the the, the the fact that he was urgently and uh, inevitably a poet, um, and there's this tremendous uh, blush and flush of words. Well, he's he's very much a man solving himself. He's very much a romantic uh, poet. Well, this
1: this idea has been brought up that uh, the image Rogers kept using, the symbol of the hair, he felt himself as the hair, and you say he was solving himself. Does this for you in his poetry come out?
8: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, there is the um, tr- so, tremendous poems of conflict uh, or... A poem like Mary Magdalene um, would probably be a a kind kind of uh, significant poem for me uh, about on the one hand a rigorous, I suppose, a Presbyterian uh, sensibility uh, playing against a a very rakish, lascivious uh, impulses. And um, those two, the the kind of rigour, control, uh, and, on the other hand, the the kind of throwaway, flamboyant, sensuous, sensual, are always uh, working.
2: You suck in good and spit out sin, just as you would a spent grape skin... Light is a glove, you separate the thing you love from that you hate. But this divorce and glib conclusion is got, of course, by their collusion. In you contend both good and ill. This will not end in final spill of one or other. God is not mocked, for in steps bother the king's proctor. Would
1: you call him a religious poet in the sense that Herbert was, or for
8: example, R.S. Thomas, who, like. Well, I think he's not, a, he's not a religious poet in the sense R.S. Thomas is. I mean, R.S. Thomas is, is rather writes pastoral letters, so to speak. He's more like Hopkins of the terrible sonnets, I think. You don't really know much about R.S. Thomas in some way. R.S. Thomas' persona is the persona of the priest. Uh, Rogers isn't. Rogers. Uh, at his best as I think has a persona, he has a very distinctive has, well that's the squittle has a persona. I was going to say the distinctive voice, but Rogers is one of the best poets in English of the forties, fifties, sixties. Um his tremendous push of intelligence, tremendous verbal agility, tremendous observation, great joy, great sensuality, uh, great life in the poems. And uh, the collected poems and they're together You'd forgotten because he'd just produced uh, Awakening, a long space of time, in then Europa and the Bull and then Silence. And you'd forgotten that he has produced an opus that people can't get around. To.
2: The old farmer nearing death asked to be carried outside and set down where he could see a certain field. And then I will cry my heart out, he said. It troubles me thinking about that man what shape was the field of his crying in Donegal I remember a small field in Down a field within fields shaped like a triangle I could have stood there and looked at it all day long and I remember crossing the frontier between France and Spain at a forbidden point and seeing a, a small triangular field in Spain and stopping or walking in Ireland, down any rutted by-road to where it hit the highway, there was always at this turning point an abutment, a still center, a V-shape of grass untouched by cornering traffic, where country lads larked at night. I think I know what the shape of the field
0: was that made the old man weep. On the day I was born, no preneed salesmen, as they call them in America, no pre-need salesmen called at the door to try and sell me cemetery space. But they did something just as good. They saddled me with a doctrine called predestination, a doctrine which is fittingly summed up in the words of a metrical paraphrase I used to sing in school. Determined are the days that fly successive o'er thy head. The numbered are is on the wing that lays thee with the dead. I never quite got over that. And later in life, when I became a Presbyterian minister, oh, how many of my parishioners would ask me to repeat that deadly paraphrase to them as a living consolation. He was very nice for to for
5: listen to them, for he was very intelligent, you see. And he had, a, he, had a, he had a voice for preaching, and he had a voice for doing a wedding, and he had a very a different voice for doing a funeral. More
6: sadder. Now, when we're out hunting, you'll often see a on a hill a lone man. And that man sees more of the hunt than ever we do. And that man enjoys it his either. day. And the hero always goes to him. Goes to him, and the dogs will go to him. And he would see every bar of that hunt, he says. And he can tell just as much as we can tell.
0: It would suit you better, said my Puritan mother when she saw I was so pleased. "that it'd suit you better to be thinking of your latter end. "'Ah, there's time enough for that,' said my father. "'Only a green
2: hill and a man with a spade "'opening the old accounts' book of Earth "'and writing paid. "'Under the highly improbable sky, "'needlessly blue, "'he piles the cold clay. "'It is all you might say so dead true to life. "'The meek clay Turning the other cheek to the clap of the spade, waits to inherit the earth of the man whom it has made. But he made it that made him, he put the word on it that gave life and limb. Now to speak of an end is to begin.